Well, uh, tonight we're going to talk about glory, and we're going to talk about that as our gift uh, to oneness. And the title probably doesn't make any sense if you weren't here or at one of the other uh, groups last week. So let me review just a very, very brief thing. Um, I was looking into the concepts of fellowship and oneness to try to understand them a little bit better. And in the course of that, I was actually sort of surprised by a passage of Scripture that I've read hundreds of times, and I'm sure you guys have too, um, but a couple of them actually, but they were involved in um, the concept of fellowship, and that led to a study last week, and then we followed up on our Tuesday night group and our Monday night group, and I asked uh, a lot of different questions about fellowship and the assumptions of fellowship, and virtually every person that I talked to um, basically had a very interesting, good, diverse ideas about what fellowship was. But 100% uh, were focused on our fellowship being horizontal with one another. And so I want to read this, this verse out of the first uh, letter of John. And it says, What we have seen, this is verse 3, chapter 1, and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And um, it really struck me uh, hard that so much energy is spent. Uh, One of the points that came out in a lot of the discussion uh, was there's even places that churches designate for fellowship. They're called fellowship halls. Anybody ever been in a fellowship hall? I've built a couple, uh, vacuumed a couple, mopped a couple, cleaned a punch up, you know. Uh, but one of the things that, that has characterized my growth uh, and time with the Lord in the last 10, 12 years is I, I just am constantly astonished at how many plainly spoken, plainly written things there are in Scripture that I just glossed over, you know, I glossed over. And this was one of them, that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then there's another section that was talking about the oneness that uh, is characteristic of of fellowship and stuff. And over in John chapter 17, and we're going to actually get to this verse in a little bit, but I want to read a couple of things here. Uh, In that section where Jesus is praying and He's talking about the Father restoring His glory and so on, Uh, And then he prays for his disciples. And then in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. And so I would just suggest that that is who you are. That's who I am. So this prayer that Jesus is praying the night before he is arrested is partly for you and I. Or not partly. This part is directly for you and I. It would be a better way to say it. And, And so he says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but on those who also believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And I thought, wow, okay. So thinking about fellowship and thinking about the oneness that everybody, as we talked about it all week long, they, they talked about fellowship being characterized by oneness and genuine connection, genuine communication, all this kind of stuff. But 
when we got to the point of our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Lord Jesus Christ, it began even more important that this oneness is a real thing, and it's there. And so then uh, he goes on, and he says, the glory which you have given me, now, the, the you have given me, that's Jesus praying to His Father. This is verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, interestingly enough, the New, uh, New American Standard Bible is usually really careful with tenses. And so I, I pretty much trust that this is a past tense that I have given them. But the heading that the editors put in there, inserted between verses 21 and 22, is their future glory. <laughs> you know, seems seems like a weird commentary to make when the very next line says that I have given you this glory. So that's the thing that kind of jumped out at, at us last week and throughout the week as we talked about it. And, and um, so it's obvious that we're not going to understand very clearly what he's saying in verse 22 if we don't at least tackle in part the concept of glory. Because he said, the glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given them. And the purpose of that glory is that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. And then for those of you that believe evangelism is important, which I'm pretty sure is all of us, um, it says, uh, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. That's those that he prayed for that believe on his word. So that's thus in this room. Um, that they may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So that, that not just that he loves us, but the caliber of the love that the Father has for us, because we're the ones that believed on them through their word. That caliber is measured by how the Father loves the Son. So, glory is a big deal, I think. And we're, So this is like the second of a kind of introduction, sort of. What is glory and how do we perceive a glory? So we're going to take a look at it tonight. And I'm hoping that we'll have a, a, some time when we crank up the mic and and get your thoughts on it and questions. And if you have any, go ahead. I'm going to power through the first part of this. So here's a dictionary definition of glory. I did this last week at Fellowship and Oneness. High renown or honor won by notable achievements. Uh, and the sentence they used it in is to fight and die for the glory of one's nation. Similar concepts that are associated with glory are renown, fame, prestige, honor, distinction, eminence, preeminence, acclaim, celebrity, praise, accolades, laurels, recognition, note, notability, credit, reputation, name, and illustriousness. And the opposite of, of glory would be shame or obscurity. Uh, I don't know how many of you, how many of you have uh, ever read C.S. Lewis's uh, essay, The Weight of Glory? Anybody? I've got it with me here, and uh, I might read a couple sections of it if we have some time. But Lewis made a very candid comment about this when he was talking about it in glory. He said, for the life of me, I couldn't find how to feel excited and not mercenary about the concept of glory, because it seemed that it was one of two things, one of which is evil, perhaps, and one is frivolous. The evil one is to be famous, because Lewis approached fame as something that was a competitive thing between him and other people. And he said, that sounds like it's more from the kingdom of darkness than it is kingdom of light. And then the other is luminescence. And he goes, who wants to be a light bulb? You know, just... That way. 
And I, I thought it was a, a great way to introduce the concept. And I think that's one reason why glory is kind of an obscure concept to us that we don't really think a whole lot about. Um, but these words kind of give us some hints in a secular view of what glory is looked at, like praise or uh, recognition. Lewis went on to say, though, that after taking a look at it in the context of, of Christianity, particularly in taking a look at it in, in the context of the father-son relationship, or as we talk about a lot here, unless you uh, turn and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom as a child, He said, what child, not an evil child or a selfish child, but a good child, doesn't just absolutely radiate when a person that he loves, like a father or mother, recognizes something in him. And so this idea of recognition or fame by God is something that probably is at the heart of glory in one way. And there's a lot of different stuff down there. Um, Another way to, to think of that is, what would we do without the hope of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant? So it doesn't have to be mercenary, right? It doesn't have to be. I think we're going to see tonight that maybe we think of it that way and it hurts us. So we'll see if we can get to that. Um, another definition is magnificence or great beauty, lovely splendor, grandeur, those sorts of things. So that's the secular definition. Here's some biblical words. Uh, Old Testament biblical word that primarily is translated. There's one other that is translated beauty, tisba'a, or something along those lines. And in places where they're both in the same sentence, this is the one that's translated glory, the other is translated beauty. But this is almost universally translated glory in most translations. Honor, glorious... So it means abundant riches. Wealth is one of those, like the glory of somebody, uh, the glory of um, Esau, for instance, grew. That meant that his crops and his uh, animals and so on. Uh, Honor, splendor and glory. Honor in the form of dignity. Honor in the form of reputation. Honor in the form of reverence and a kind of glory. And then a glory itself, which often is the thing that Lewis was talking about, luminescence, Brightness, shining associated with a manifestation of glory. And um, then there's Strong's definition is a little, little less spread out, but the one element that Strong's brings out is that properly kavod means weight, a heaviness, uh, but only figuratively in a good sense, except for one verse in the scripture. And this wasn't a real negative thing, but it said Eli was heavy. And uh, it was talking about the prophet Eli. So that used this word. Uh, but figuratively, in a good sense, mostly splendor, copiousness, gloriously, or glory and honor. Now, here are some scriptures that I want us to think about. In Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord. This is the scene at, at, the, at Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on that seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the Son of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. So you can get quite a visual picture. And the thing for, for um, longer time Joylanders, the consuming fire connection here just thrilled me. Because that scripture that I reviewed with you out of John, Jesus is praying to his father to, that earlier in, in John 17, he said, restore to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. So there is a relationship between the father and the son and the incarnation and the redemptive work of Jesus in which 
uh, a lot of times I think people use, use the Greek word kenosis. It's a setting aside so that there was a masking of the glory of Jesus or something. But that he was praying that that be restored. And I'm not sure we, I'm not sure I fully understand what that means and how to, how to go about it, but I'm hoping to dig through this and, and get a better picture of that. But this is talking about that kind of glory that uh, is linked with who God is. And in Hebrews, at the end of chapter 12, it says God is a consuming fire. Here's another one. This is a different location, kind of a similar concept. It's in 1 Kings, and it's when the ark was being brought to the newly developed temple that Solomon had built. And it's not the dedication per se, that comes a few verses later, but it's when the ark came in. It says, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so there is one of those examples that that concept of weightiness, the the pressure, the weight, the heaviness, uh, it says they couldn't even physically stand to execute their ministry. And then Solomon, uh, so after everybody got up well. Another place where that might be seen, although I don't think the word, the New Testament word doxa or glory is there, is when Jesus was confronted by, um, by Judas and by the temple guards and by the Romans in the garden. And they said, uh, you know, he said, who are you here for? And he said, Jesus. And he said, well, I am. And they go, Poof. so there's a, a literal glory, a literal weight of glory, the weight of glory. And then uh, in Lewis's article, it was a sermon originally, um, the weight of glory at the end, he ties it into this idea of that glory being handed off to humanity by Jesus. And the weight is something that we might end up, uh, hopefully we can get to. So anyhow, the elements here, the appearance, this is kind of like the shining, the brightness. You know, the light was up on there and they could see it. Moses went in in six days. And if you remember, this was such a dramatic, bright, fiery, thundery scene that after Moses, he went in after being called in after six days of this presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And then he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the course of that month and a half, everybody thought he was dead and they decided to make him another god. So it's pretty dramatic, pretty physical, pretty visual and visceral, probably. And then down here, it was that the priest couldn't stand. So we saw that. Okay, so here's a, another scripture. This is, uh, I just abbreviated the first part. I think I might read that because it's really, yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so uh, starting in verse 2, it says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, think about that for a second. And then in Habakkuk, Habakkuk says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How many of you have heard that prophecy before and had it uh, sort of presented to you as a goal for what God's doing in the earth and how and how many of you have thought about it and says, Lord, I don't actually see that happening right yet. <laughs> so here's what I want you to see out of these two. Isaiah, who prophesied, said that the whole earth is full of his glory. Of course, it wasn't even Isaiah prophesying this. This was the actual seraphim speaking it themselves. So I'm thinking we can take it to the bank that the whole earth 
is full of his glory. Now, I suppose it's possible that a case could be made that between the time of what Isaiah saw and where we live today, that the glory left or leaked out or something. But I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm counting on the fact that it hasn't. That adds a significant amount of value to to reading Habakkuk's prophecy slowly and not omitting, like I did for about 30 years, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Because the thing that we need to see happen on this earth is a revelation of the knowledge of the glory that's already here. The knowledge of the glory that's already here. And that takes me back to that passage I referred to you out of John where it says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, you and me and and, uh, me and them so that they may be one and the world may know. See, I think we're suffering a deficit of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in this world. Now, some areas, the glory seems like people recognize it. Uh, uh, There's a lot of ways, you know, creation declares the glory of God. And so I don't know anybody that doesn't at some point in their life stand and wonder at a sunrise or wonder at a, a waterfall, or uh, the, the, the diffuse beauty that there is in the, in the world, or something like that. Um, the specialness of a little baby being born, uh, the miracle of new growth or life, or uh, seeds coming out of the ground in a farmer's field. You know? So I do think that there's ways that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is, we're in touch with it, but I think there's a big area where, where we're probably missing it. And people like me have contributed to that, and I'm trying to undo that now. <laughs> anyway, so here's the New Testament definition. Uh, our, the primary New Testament word for glory is the word doxa. Uh, there's a, an adjective version of it that means glory, yes. But um, this is the uh, probably my go-to lexicon, but it's a little bit complex sometimes. So this is kind of semi-complex. I apologize for it. The condition of being bright or shining. Brightness, splendor, radiance, a distinctive aspect of the Hebrew word we just looked at, which is kabod. So there's that, that shininess there, radiance. The second is a physical phenomenon. So the, the radiance, like when Jesus started shining on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's other instances. Um, of humans engaged in transcendent circumstances, the thing to think about that, to get an idea of that concept, is Moses' face shining when he came down off the mountain. Okay? Uh, the description or state of being in the next life, participating in the radiance or the glory. Uh, and we think about that a lot. You know, People talk about near-death experiences going into the light. Uh, they think about us shining. Unfortunately, in Philippians, it talks about us uh, do everything without grumbling and complaining so that we can shine as lights. Uh, and everybody pushes that off to the future like it's only going to be when we're in heaven. But he said basically we're going to be shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, so that would be like right now. And, um, and then the last one is reflected radiance. So that's what doxa is used for, and it's used a lot. So one of the reasons that this is a bit of a complicated second installment of this thing uh, to try to get to is there's just so much use of these words. Kabbat is used a lot in the Old Testament. This is used a lot here. The second is the state of being magnificent, greatness, splendor, or catching the eye. And the third is honor as enhancement or recognition of status or performance or fame. And I've got this First uh, Timothy passage. It's, it's the, this word is used where 
like the apostle or whoever gives praise to God or something of that nature. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what that concept is about. Okay, make sense? So we're just giving glory to God, praising Him, ascribing Him glory and stuff. The last one is a transcendent being deserving of honors, honor or a majestic being. The illustration in Jude 8, if you remember it, it, it it's a warning that people are uh, arrogant and they, they uh, rail against majestic beings, angels, uh, foolishly. So, now we're going to get back into Scripture. Definitions are over, thank goodness. Uh, John 17, 22 and 23 says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I read this earlier. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Uh, as far as other New Testament scriptures about glory, I, I wanted to kind of take a survey, but I've got myself in the middle of the message now, and I don't think I can do it. But uh, another super common scripture about glory is this one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so uh, I thought I would contrast these two scriptures as significant statements about glory. How many of you uh, could have said that Romans passage by memorization? Okay, yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, It's one of the steps, if you will, on the Roman road. Any of you ever studied Roman road? It's uh, In my younger days, it was prominently featured in most gospel tracts, especially the chick tracts, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, sadly, for me anyway, I never had anybody teach me that one (laughs) in John. It was never a commonly known thing, uh, which is why it kind of caught me off guard just a few weeks ago. Not, not saying that I didn't, hadn't read it before and everything. but So I guess my question would be, uh, here's the meaty parts of these things. One is making a declaration of what the Father has done for the Son. You have given me the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. And he's given it to the disciples. But it's not just the disciples, because remember, this follows immediately after the verse that says, I don't only pray for them, but I pray for those that believe in me because of their word, which is us, you people today. All right? And then that they may be perfected in unity. And last week, we talked a little bit about the unity aspect and the oneness aspect. And uh, just this week, I had a chance to participate in a pastor's prayer group down in Colorado Springs. And we didn't talk about it this week because the group was pretty small. We focused on some other things. But almost always when we pray with groups like that, uh, there's a, uh, there is a focus in one way or another on how can we be unified? You know, how can we, you know, how blessed it is that brothers dwell together in unity, that that's where the blessing is commanded and all this kind of stuff. I'm not against it, but here's a method of being perfected in unity that Jesus explained. And the method is that we receive and be aware, I think, of the glory that he gave us. And then uh, Sonny stole my thunder on the Tuesday study because uh, there's the scripture, and I haven't even looked it up, so I don't know where it is. There's a scripture that says that God won't share his glory with another. And I know Bill Johnson uh, has kind of dealt with that in a a famous way back there in Bethel. And he said, uh, 
Well, the, the, the problem with the way we interpret that is we're not another. We're his children. And so it's not that he's sharing his glory with another. We're his kids. We're his family. We're a part of him. We're conceived in, in, in his heart. And so I just think that this idea of why, why did Jesus share that glory is because he wants us to be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So this would be one evangelistic, potential evangelistic message. We go up to our neighbor and we say, did you know that God, Jesus himself, has given glory to all who believe? The very glory that he has had since the beginning of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. His life has become our life. Did you know that? And did you know that you can absolutely know that he loves you and his glory is in you and on you? That's one potential. The other one, which is a more common evangelistic message for most of us in this culture, is all have sinned, that includes you, and fallen short of the glory of God. In one, the glory is a gift to lift us out of isolation. In another, the glory is a measurement, a standard erected to measure and reinforce our isolation. Does that make sense? Now, I think that deserves a better look. And there's something... Which of these scripture revelations do you think is more is deemed more commonly or more important in our culture? I, I clearly, I mean, how many would say the Romans passage? Yeah. How many would, after just first hearing about it, wish it was the John passage? I, I, I mean, even just even if you, you even if you weren't trying to be easy on somebody's sin or anything, wouldn't it be nice? for the first rattle out of the box for them to understand that there's a gift here. There's a glorious gift of, that, that is designed from heaven to earth by, and, and, and delivered by Jesus already to make you one, to, to end that sense of isolation. So I think so too. Now, which one defines what people are? Now, some might say, well, yeah, but it says there that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I would like to suggest that the John passage is much more aggressive and specific at defining who people are. Okay, now, I want you to notice something about Romans. None of us, probably, uh, except those that were like me in the last two weeks we've been looking at it, probably none of us have ever memorized that section out of John 17. Has anybody here done it? Because I'd like to shake your hand. Okay. Praise God. There you go. There you go. Okay, you owe me a handshake later. Here's the problem with the verse, quote, which is a verse, 23, that we memorize that Roman. It doesn't even have a capital letter at the beginning of it. And it doesn't have a concluding punctuation mark at the end. What does that mean? It's it's a phrase. It's It's not even a whole sentence. But I've heard it quoted thousands of times as a definitive statement of our human condition. 
It's not a complete sentence. It's a part of a bigger sentence. So let's look at what the bigger sentence says and see if we have handled it properly or if we have overdivided the word <laughs> in an aggressive way. So this is the context. This is actually uh, four verses, but it is um, one sentence in which Romans 3.23 is carried. One sentence. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now wait, I thought we were talking about the sinful nature of all people. Now since this is one sentence, and the subject of the sentence, the subject of the sentence here is about the revelation of the righteousness of Right? Okay. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a period. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So what would you say the point of this one sentence is, beginning with Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law rights of God, ending with, uh, as a propitiation in his blood through faith? It would seem to me that it would be an examination of how the righteousness of God has been given as a gift confirmed by the law, confirmed by the prophets, but it's been given as a gift to redeem those who, all those who, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now, in that context, the glory of God is not a marker measuring how big a failure we are because of sin. It is a a destination in the horizon that God has taken the time to pour out the blood of His Son to get us to. And this could be wildly encouraging. You mean, even though I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there's hope for me? Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's other places where Paul says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, while I was falling short of the glory of God. So now the glory of God is not something that stands there accusing me. And judging me in that sense, the way it feels like when you just isolate that one verse. And then we'll talk about judgment and stuff like that later. So I'm not trying to get us away from Romans 3.23. I'm trying to include the rest of the sentence to see what really is being talked about. Now the John passage in its larger context also establishes the destination. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. What sort of measurement of our condition does that provide hope for? There's a verse, it's Tim's favorite verse. He's not here tonight, they're teaching over to marriage retreat. But um, John 14, 20. In that day, Jesus says, and he's talking about after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and after everything that's going to take place, obviously in the cross and Pentecost and all that. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Now, I don't think any believer I know 
has a problem with that part of the statement. We know that Jesus is in his Father. We know it from what John says. We know it from the core of how our spirit reacts when we come to know who he is. But he says, in that day, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's the same breath. It's a short sentence, and there is no reason to separate the components in that sentence and, and, and say, well, I can believe this one, but I don't, see it. I don't see how it works where I'm in him and him. That's all that this statement is saying. We're in him and he's in us because he has given us the glory the Father restored to him and gave him from the foundation of the world. That is the gospel. The gospel is not fundamentally, and, and I'm all for repentance and sin had to be dealt with. But the gospel is not fundamentally a story about sin. It is a story about glory. It is a story about the glory that Christ had with the Father at the beginning, before the beginning of the world, being put in us. And yes, sin meant put back in us in a way because of the fall and because of the rejection and the isolation and everything that came from that, the blindness, the darkness. But sin never dictated the gospel. That's why John can go on to say that the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. That's the measurement. Then he gets specific. I in them, you in me. And here's what the result of that is. This is what our intention, Father, is for this, is that you and I can be one just as they are one. Now, that isn't something that you do in a fellowship hall. One of the guys on Tuesday had visited a church recently, and he said they were so nice and so polite and so consistent. They came up, they said something, they even came to my house. He said, but I, I kid you not, as sweet as it was, I did not feel like anything human or personal was being exchanged. It was It was a program, I appreciated it, but he he was just longing for more of a reality, more of a connection. And I think that's what we're being promised here. But I think even if you have suffered, like almost all of us have at one point in time, where we felt alone, we felt like we were uh, alone in a room full of people, alone in the church, alone in a big church, alone in a small church, doesn't matter, you can be alone anywhere that way, uh, where people just are withholding a little bit. I was joking with, with Monique and Olaf, she asked me how my day was. And, and if you ask me a specific question that's not just an obvious social, uh, hi, how are you type of thing, I, I just can't help but answering. So we had this extended conversation where I was trying to figure out how to be honest about how my day was. And it was okay. It was just complicated. But uh, that, I, I long to be one with people for a couple of reasons. Because I'm built to connect. I long to be one with God. I don't want to have an estranged relationship with God. I don't even want to have just a good but distant sort of formal relationship with God. Where, yeah, I know God loves me. You know, no, I want to know my daddy. I want to hear the Holy Spirit crying out in my heart, Abba, Father. I want to know my Papa. And I want to know that he knows me. And this is the promise to that. This is the promise to that. And... The thought of evangelizing by cold calling on people, knocking on their door, 
looking for the opportunity to spring on them that they're a sinner and need to repent is not how I would want to evangelize the world. Because I would much rather show them some part of the journey of being perfected in unity that I'm on. And I don't think that I am perfected there now. And I don't think I can show them a finished product. But I can show them the reality of the working of it. I believe that. So that they may know that the Father sent His Son and that He loved them. I think that is such a stunning statement. Think of this. This is so the world, the cosmos, the people out there, not, not even necessarily the ones that have already believed, that they can know that God has loved them. And the measurement of how much the Father has loved them is, is none other than, and no less than, how much He loved Jesus. I think this is a huge deal. And I think glory is a part of it. I think that one of the things that happens as we are on this journey being perfected in unity by virtue of the glory that Jesus has received from His Father and given to us is that we begin to see it. We begin to recognize the reality of it. And in the minute that that happens, our life becomes centered on a gift. Not just the gift of forgiveness, but the gift of transformation, the gift of glory, the gift of actually getting hope that we might belong in heaven. We might belong in the fellowship of the Trinity. Not just get there with some kind of a fake skin that looks like Jesus on the outside, but really be transformed, really be changed, really belong there, really feel at home there, in the glory. In the glory. Because the glory is in us. And it's working in us. And then the second thing, which I think is huge, is, and the reason I want to spend a few more weeks on this glory idea is because the definitions, you know, the secular ones and even the, the big long one that the lexicon gave, it's too big to eat in a way. You know, it's, got, it's too complex. But I want us to believe and begin to experience the ability to recognize glory when we see it. To recognize glory in other people. Because I'll tell you what, I don't care how hard somebody is, how conditioned they are to their own lifestyle, how, you know, uh, Jesus said, this is judgment, that light has come in the world, and men love darkness rather than light. I don't care how much somebody loves darkness rather than light. If you can somehow, consistently, identify the glory in them, and share it, speak it, two things are going to happen. One, the revelation of the light, the shininess of that glory in them is going to begin to dispel the darkness that has them ensnared. That's one thing that will happen for sure. Now, the darkness doesn't ensnare us with chains and cuffs, even though there's some good worship songs that talk about that. The darkness in, ensnares us in blindness to the truth. It covers up who we really are and, and what we are really made for. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is the deliverance of that ignorance. 
It's the deliverance of that blindness. And so I I really think that's what what we're looking at. I want us to be a people who can recognize the glory of God as the gift it is in our own lives. And we can own it. Not with some kind of weird, false uh, fear or something. Uh, you know, I had a, a couple of conversations this week as I was talking about this a little bit about people going, well, you know, I don't have any glory. Yeah, you do. You know, uh, I understand what, what we're saying when we say that. We don't want to, uh, you know, think more highly of ourselves than we want. We don't want to do this. But you know what? If, if, if I say that I don't have any glory and Jesus said he's given me glory, I'd encourage you to go with Jesus on that one because he knows what he's talking about. And I'm just living off my own personal experience and analysis. And there's times it doesn't feel like I have glory, but I don't think that nullifies what Jesus said he did. So I'm going with Jesus on that one. You have glory. And I'm going to, I want to get to the place where I can go with Jesus on that one into the cosmos, into the world around me, into my neighbors. And I can look for glory. Now, last point I'm going to make, and then I'm going to open up the mic. When I was first being instructed in theology years and years ago, it was Assemblies of God, so um, a little bit of an Armenian theology, but it was still based basically on Reformation, you know. Uh, We went to such enormous lengths to explain why an unbeliever or a pagan mother who loved her children wasn't reflecting anything about the love of God in that. She was doing that out of self-centered motives. Or uh, an unbelieving or a pagan man who worked to provide for his family or who died to protect them wasn't manifesting the reality of God because God forbid we should think that God is seen, His glory is seen in anybody except somebody who's prayed to prayer. I've come a long way since then. And I, I hope that we can get there because I think viewing the world as people who are utterly devoid of glory is one of the reasons why evangelism is so damn hard. And I don't want it to keep being that way in your life or in mine. All right, so the mic's open. If any of you guys have uh, questions, comments, thoughts, challenges... I'm open to all those things. Those are fun. and uh, Or you could just want to... Which revelation of glory speaks of the heart and purpose of God? This is the other thing. One, one of our revelations of glory talks about humans. The other talks about who God is. Dave. So I want to ask one question. Yes, sir. How many people are going to memorize that whole scripture now? <laughs> <laughs> you know... It, you don't have to do the whole thing. Just do the part that says, the glory I received from you, I gave to them. And I'm one of them. You know, that kind of thing. Go, Ronnie. So the, I'm uh, buying into the part that John 14, 20. First John? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, John 14. Just John. Uh-huh. I'm in you. Or I'm in the Father. You are in me. And I am in you. Yeah. Jesus saying that. Yes, yeah. That because he's in me and he's got loads of glory... I get it. Yeah. I get that glory. It would be kind of weird that he would move in without the very without glory. Without bringing the glory with him. That characterizes who he is. Yeah. And so any glory that I have or I manifest is, I can be humbly allowed to say, I've got glory because Jesus is in me. Yeah. And that I extend now to other people. Yeah. 
that may or may not have said a prayer. Yeah, 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 because here's the deal. The choice to put glory in people is a choice made by God. The choice to recognize and live in that is one that we make once we have the ability to make it. But, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And part of that dying involved that, that glory. Yeah, um, one of the things I wanted to say was, I'm going to cry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but when we think about glory, you know, we don't think about ourselves. We think about God, you know, God on the throne or Jesus on the cross. But the reality is, is that, like Ronnie said, he's in us. And if he's in us, we have glory. One of the saddest things that I do when I teach is I try and get the people that I'm involved with to look at themselves and actually see their personal glory. And so one of the things I do is I, I say, get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and just see your glory. And I cannot tell you how many people cannot do that. We did a mirror here one time, and it said, Beloved. And we just, we just asked people to go up to that mirror and look and see what that means for you. And there were people who just couldn't do it. it they couldn't really walk It was intimate up. kind of thing, just looking at yourself in the mirror in front of yeah, a group of people. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I want to encourage you guys, look for your glory. And as you find your glory... Look for those moments when God breaks into the world and shows us glory. Um, Susan Boyle, I don't know if you guys remember her, but America's Got Talent, Great, 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 Great Britain's Got Talent. She comes out, frumpy little lady, and she sings, you know... Um, I had a dream. I dreamed a dream. I dreamed a dream. And she stunned the world with her glory. And it is probably still one of the top 10 YouTube videos. And so we can stun the world with our glory. And that one scripture where it says, you know, by our glory, they'll know we're unified or however you said it. Perfected in union. Perfected in union. If we will let our glory out and when we recognize glory in somebody else and just say it to them, you know, say what their glory is. Um, I just think that we will see stuff just falling off of humanity, period. Just falling to the ground as if it was of no importance, and that glory will be magnified. Anyway. So I think in a way that's what Habakkuk saw when he said that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Anybody else? I've got a question about the... Um passage that you read on 17, uh, John chapter 17. Um, uh, it starts with, um, you know, the, the glory, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. And I'm uh, wondering, is the context that, that we were without glory in our sinful state, without Christ, without hope, without God, as uh, Paul says in Ephesians and Galatians, right? And then when God in his mercy chose to grant us repentance and brought us to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that 
act of salvation that when God brought us back to be a part of his kingdom once again from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light at that point God gives us that glory that God gave Jesus he gives to us because at that moment Christ in us is the hope of glory for example okay wait let me let me so uh, is that speak to, no let me speak to that point the phrase Christ in us, the hope of glory, is in Colossians. And it, it's what Paul is saying when he says a mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages, but has now been revealed. And that mystery is, and he's talking about reaching out to the Gentiles, that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, I would, what, what you're, the way you're articulating it might be true. But I don't think it's, I don't think it necessarily is the truth or the only truth because I don't know how it works in the mind of God. I don't think uh, like, like a mystery that has been kept hidden, but now is revealed. I don't get the impression out of that passage in Colossians chapter, um, chapter two or one, one, yeah, chapter one into chapter one. I don't get the impression that the way that is administered uh, and the way it's released is one case at a time, on one person at a time's repentance and one person at a time's prayer. So I, I think that there is an aspect from God's perspective where he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, and in love he predestined us to do that. And, and so there is a, a release of that glory in Christ that is not dependent upon my receiving of it, because it's released to me while I'm still ignorant of that, and while I'm still a sinner. So it's possible that it's administered in that case-by-case basis, and so then a person doesn't have any of that glory, but I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think that that glory is hidden, it's masked, it's unrecognized, that we're alienated in our mind, hostile in heart, and engaged in evil deeds. And so I don't personally think that it would make sense that he would say that the world, speaking of the whole cosmos, uh, may know that you sent me and loved them. So to the degree that the Father loves people, and, and his love is a part of that glory, that glory, that love has been released prior to our receiving it, I think. So go ahead. So the... <clears throat> Going back to verse uh, 20 on, when Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but, but those for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, and then going on, even as you, Father, and me, and that they may be one in us, so that the world may believe, talking about the unity of the believers. Mm-hmm. And then he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, continuing the same thought of being one, just as we are one, so the glory, as you said, is a factor to unite us to, with God, Christ, you, me, as believers, together as one. What, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem, honestly. I don't have a problem if that's uh, how we interpret it. Because I mean, that I'm would just be asking, a couple of big steps forward. Like, for example, uh, uh, almost every Christmas, the Boko Haram in um, uh, Nigeria, they go... Or, or, or the, um, the, the other Muslim group, they go and kill Christians on Christmas Day mm-hmm. this last few years. And uh, when, it, when you think of that incident, 
you know, and I'm, I'm, I pray against that, you know, throughout sure. the year. Say, Lord, what about these people? You know, do, can you say that they're in darkness or they're in glory? And uh, how do you re reconcile the fact of uh, a blatant, you know, uh, atrocities? Well, you know, with, with the glory of that, gl the glory is still on them, or they could have that glory when they come to Christ. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, just the only way, the only thing that I can say, there's obviously a difference between somebody who believes and then begins to recognize and begins to live in that glory. But the glory doesn't start with their belief. It's a gift that was given to the, from the Father to the Son, and then the Son gives it. And, and so I want us to emphasize as much as is possible... Um, I want us to think about what is the the real substance of the thing. It's the part that God sees. It's the part that God gives. And we are in a process, it says there, of being perfected in that unity. And it's the glory that perfects us. So I don't have to fully understand it. They don't have to fully understand it. And it might be possible that they don't understand it at all. But that the glory is still given through Jesus to begin that perfection process. Yeah, Richard. I would assume that um, the prophetic word that Joel gave out, I will pour out my, whole, my spirit upon all flesh, yeah. that that's, his spirit would have the glory that's going out on all flesh. I would think so. Yeah. Again, because the glory is a part of who God is. And in that, uh, what Richard's alluding to, what Richard is, oh, I mean, I had to get off the thing. I understand you guys are supposed to be up here worshiping. <laughs> The, uh, the, the, what he's alluding to about, about uh, Pentecost in, is when Peter said, uh, this is that which Joel prophesied. And what Joel said was that in that day, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, sarks, not, not on redeemed flesh, not on sanctified flesh, on all flesh. So it was a target-rich environment because that pretty much included everybody. Need to say something, sweetie? Okay. I hope everybody has a good life. Thank and I you. hope they have a great time being a kid. Amen. Amen. Amen.